Morning. Welcome to Come and Reason Sabbath School. Happy Sabbath. Uh, we're live streaming and meeting here in Collegedale, Tennessee. Uh, we're happy to have so many people in class join us. We're happy if you're joining us online. My name is Lori Atkins. Let's open class with prayer today. Father, we invite your presence here today. In fact, we invite your presence everywhere. Rain down on uh, rain down on this planet right now. Uh, we hope that you'll be there in Akron as well with Dr. Jennings and with the attendees. Um, yeah, we want you here. We want you to open our hearts and minds. We want you to soften our hearts. We're asking for a special blessing uh, today on the West family, longtime Sabbath school members during a time of sadness and mourning. Um, and we thank you for your promises um, that this world is not our home. And we we ask that you would remove the barriers, remove the obstacles to this message of truth about who you are going forward so that we can see you soon. We can see our loved ones soon is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're studying this week. We're studying lesson eight in our quarterly called The Least of These, Ministering to Those in Need. The title of lesson eight is The Least of These. If you look at our memory verse, it's obviously this quarterly's namesake text from Matthew twenty-five forty, And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So Jesus had a lot to say about how to treat, how to care for others, particularly those who were hurting, who were lost, who were marginalized. In case you haven't noticed, there has been some overlap in this quarter's lesson. They're quite consistent. This week is no exception. So even though we've already talked a bit about Christ's focus on the poor and the oppressed and the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to dig into both of those a little more this week. What is God's goal for us human beings? What's his ultimate goal? Restoring, healing, salvation, complete healing from our sin-sick condition, and ultimately eternal life in relationship with him. Now, is this God's goal for all humans, 100%? Or is this his goal only for the humble and the downtrodden and the poor? Think it's everybody? So why does God seem to have a particular regard for the humble, the downtrodden, and the poor? And it advises us to do the same. They can listen. Maybe more able to listen. More in a place to listen. More like in his judgment. In more cases than not. Right. More like in this, the need, their need. Yeah. yeah. So they can recognize their need. And it's who God is. God is compassionate. Even just before the flood, he, he looked at the, their hearts were evil and wicked continually, and his heart was filled with pain. pain. I mean, he hurts to see his children hurting. Right. And destroying themselves. But doesn't some of this depend on which law lens we're looking through? Isn't that always the question? It seems to be. So if you see it through human law, which is, of course, Satan's worldview, then the rich and powerful exploit the poor, got their, got their power and position on the backs of the poor, their actions are abusive to the poor, so God pays attention to them because he's in the business of paying people back with retributive justice. So people teach God is coming to inflict punishment on people. 
He's more concerned with righting the wrongs perpetrated on the poor and downtrodden. And therefore, God spends more energy and time on the poor than on the rich, because the rich are not as deserving. You ever heard that? That attitude? But if you understand design law and how reality actually works, you realize God cannot heal any person's heart or mind without their free will consent and active participation. Why? Law of freedom. What would happen if he did that? Yes. And it would destroy that person's individuality. The humble, the poor, the marginalized are often more willing to reach out to God, to acknowledge their own helplessness, to open their hearts, to surrender self, and to accept God's methods and principles, whereas the rich and powerful are often deceived into thinking they are fine the way they are. So perhaps God has particular regard for the downtrodden because they are more open to being saved by him, while the rich and powerful may not be as aware of their need of him. You think that's true? How do you think this plays into his instructions to us to care for the poor, the needy, the widows, and the orphans? Could it be because they are likely the most receptive what else? Could it also be about the change and the growth that, need, that happens in, uh, in us when we care for others? That needs to happen to us. Many times when we minister to one of the least of these, we are likely the ones who are more rich and in need of nothing. Particularly in material terms. Not always. But many times, who's experienced this? Who's been on a a mission trip or volunteered, fed the homeless, visited a nursing home, whatever situation? What does it do to you? What does it do inside you? That way you're part of the river. The channel. God never meant us to be the lake of life. Right. What we receive, we need to get. Outward moving. When we get stagnant, just like Betsy. Does it break your heart? It never fails to break mine. Softens it up. Humbles me. Makes me much more aware of and how grateful for how, how blessed I am. It teaches me to hold on loosely to the things of this earth. To give freely. All these things grow us and move us back closer to God's original design. These are the heart attitudes he wants to instill in us so that it will be as easy and reflexive and involuntary for us to love others as it is for us to breathe. I'm not there, FYI. (laughs) Yes, James. I'd like to go back to your comment about God's... um, desire for everybody's healing. I think everybody has a need. Mm-hmm. Everybody. Right. Not just the ones who are obviously in, in dire Temporal need, yeah. Right. Uh, it might be harder for us to recognize. For sure. But nonetheless, we should still be observant and 
being observant, it's, it's not just that they have to be obvious about their exactly. needs. Exactly. It's being aware. And those less obvious needs may, may not be observable. That's why we have to be in relationship with people. We have to get to know people. We have to connect with people in order to recognize their need or in order for them to trust us enough to let their needs be known. Totally agree. So let's look at Sunday's lesson. Jesus also talked about the kingdom of heaven, specifically during his Sermon on the Mount and in the Beatitudes. And this is the subject of Sunday's lesson. Again, we talked about this a little bit last week. So let's review and see how much we learned and if we retained anything. And isn't that the key? So Christ goes down a whole list of qualities, attributes, attitudes in the Beatitudes. And how do those sound to you? Are they typically things we want to strive for? Yes? No? Being meek. Being meek, lowly, poor in spirit, mourning. I think, you know, we have to realize these are attitudes. Yes. That we all want to strive. Right. Not circumstances. Exactly. Attitudes. But they typically sound not so appealing, unpleasant even. But then he elevates these folks and describes them as blessed and inheriting the kingdom. These are people who are poor in spirit, who are meek and lowly. They're hungry and thirsty or in mourning. How could any of these things be considered a blessing? And how could anyone with those traits be considered blessed? You said, looking at it the way we're seeing it, heart attitude, of course those are things we want, things we would strive for. But do you have any inkling of how revolutionary and exactly counter to that culture that these teachings must have been to the people that were hearing them? Exactly. Even more so than today. Uh, The health wellness gospel was in full swing back then. Folks believe that health and wealth and status and position were the outward signs uh, and proof that one was blessed by or in favor with God. Particularly those with the wealth, status, and position thought that. The characteristics described by Christ were just the opposite. They were taken to mean that someone was out of favor with God or had been cursed by God for some hidden sin. But as it's often described, the kingdom of heaven is an upside-down kingdom, or a backwards kingdom. Do you remember some of the upside-down elements of Christ's kingdom that we discussed previously? What makes it different? Polar opposite, in fact, from other earthly kingdoms. Gain your life, you must lose it. Oh, I have that one. Yeah. He who loses his life will find it. Who finds his life will lose it. Also, the more you give, the more you receive. Worldly kingdoms operate on the premise that the more you make or take or accumulate, the more you receive. I mean, it sounds like common core math. It does not compute. What else? 
Power of love. Power of love. How many earthly kingdoms operate on the power of love? I can't think of any. And Jesus said, I come as one who serves. And he told his disciples to do likewise. Yes. We think that it's great to be the leader. He said, I come as one who serves. Yes. God's kingdom is based on a power under approach rather than a power over approach. Those with the most abilities, power, and resources are to serve those with the least. Just as in John 13, when all power in heaven and on earth had been given to Christ, what did he do with it? He humbly got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. Who were all going to turn traitors that very day? Yes, within hours. Again, that does not... That doesn't make sense. It's foolishness in the world. What methods do human governments use? What law construct are all human governments built upon? Power. Power. What kind of laws? Human. Human laws, imposed laws, legislated, enacted. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. It does not operate upon the principles or laws of this sinful world. So what kind of law is Jesus' kingdom built upon? Love. Love. Design law. Truth, love, and freedom. Do any of the kingdoms of the world operate upon pure truth, never deceiving, never using falsehood? Can you imagine that? There are no dictatorial methods in Christ's kingdom. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. So there are no rules imposed and enforced with threat of punishment. Rather, there is truth presented in love, leaving others free. How should the church practice this method? both within the institution and when dealing with those outside the denomination. Do we see this in practice? Yes? No? Not so much? I think we, as preachers, as pastors, we're not succeeding in delivering the message that you are delivering today. I think we're too afraid of... Repercussions politically because of the position, the geography, where we are. If I'm a pastor in California, if I'm a pastor in Tennessee, I have to mold my words yes. in a different way. But if I am a member of the kingdom of Jesus, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not losing anything. I'm just gaining because my heart is growing. Yeah. Getting wealthy in love. But but if we are slaves or entrapped in a bundle of partisanship, we lost that. Yeah. So, uh, I would uh, appeal to the pastors, right, that just be courageous. You're not alone. The whole rest of the universe is with you. Mm-hmm. And the only thing you're doing is telling what Jesus told. Wow. People are going to tell you crazy, or you have mental illness, because mm-hmm. putting things out there, like so radical, yeah. giving to the poor, it's like, 
I think Jesus loves the poor and cares for the poor because he is in the receiving end of what sin is. Right. For those that have everything, it's not even convenient that things change, much less go the way of Jesus. And I don't have to be of any party. I just have to say what Jesus said. Yeah. Amen. That's well said. Thank you for sharing that. And what, that's, what, I, that's what makes me so sad to hear pastors, what does it say about the church structure that has a mission to bring the gospel to the world about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? We're looking at how the kingdom of heaven operates, and yet we have a church structure, infrastructure, that is literally operating exactly the opposite. Yes, exactly. What does it say about the denomination that would fire a pastor for showing his face or even his wife's face on camera in this class? Right. There's a local pastor who's been told in no uncertain terms that if he or his wife should set foot in this class and seen on camera, they will lose their job. Oh, my goodness. So, and, and you can... You can sympathize. I mean, who yeah. wants to who wants to lose uh, an income? Who exactly. Wants to lose health benefits. Who wants to do that? Okay. Yeah, the struggle between what the gentleman was saying earlier about being courageous. Uh, yeah, it, it would take dozens of, of those acts for for the the snowball to get rolling and exactly. things to, to change at the top. Which, from my understanding, is the way this denomination was designed and was structured, and was founded for that reason and for that purpose, we were structured with a top, a bottom-under approach. We were not supposed to be led by an authoritarian general office at the top. We considered that actually pagan or papal, and we did not want to be organized like that. Plus, we understood how truth spreads how truth is designed to operate, that it's a grassroots effort, that changes in thought patterns and doctrines and behaviors happen at the grassroots level. And that groundswell spreads and is adopted and then ends up rising through the ranks and eventually may become accepted doctrine. Um, and we, we see that structure kind of being turned on its head and using the power over rather than the power under, and using the tactics of fear and coercion. Um, and as we said in this class, you cannot accomplish God's work using Satan's methods. And I think it's, I think it's inhibited and uh, prevented this work from being done, the work that we were called to do. Um, and so I, I join with him. I, I I join with a call for for courage um, and to not be to not be hindered and we pray that in class every, every week that the obstacles and the hindrances and the people that are that are putting up things in the way of this message going forward be removed and they will be we're told it's going to spread we want to be a part of that so, yeah, thank you for that comment.
Anyway, we talked last about this last week. I love that the lesson emphasized it again this week in Sunday's lesson. That along with the deep spiritual truths of Christ's teachings come practical applications that are deeply relevant for our daily lives right now, today. And why is that? Why are spiritual truths always practical truths? Because it's reality. Yes, Wendell. It's who we are. It's not something we do. Correct. It's who we are. And so, whatever our actions are as a result of who we are, God doesn't take care of the poor because he thinks it's a good thing to do. Right. It's what he is like. And he wants that to be the way we are. Yeah. These spiritual truths are based on design laws. Which is how reality is built and how reality actually operates. No fantasy. Trusting God and cooperating in his healing transformation leads one to live their life in harmony with his laws. And this is always practical and always beneficial. Pursuing spiritual development through design law understanding always leads to practical applications. Not just eternal life benefits by claiming some legal payment in a book in heaven, but immediate benefits in this temporal life. Do you think this might be why Jesus continually described the kingdom of heaven as a tangible reality that we can be a part of here and now? There's a quote from Desire of Ages that says, Love to man is the earthward manifestation of the love of God. It was to implant this love to make us children of one family that the king of glory became one of us. And when his parting words are fulfilled, love one another as I have loved you. When we love the world as he has loved it, then for us, his mission is accomplished. We are fitted for heaven, for we have heaven in our hearts. Let's look at Monday's lesson. It's entitled, Overcoming Evil with Good. And man, don't we need some of this right now in our world and in our country. Monday's lesson tries to really enlighten us to some of the context surrounding Christ's teaching and the circumstances and conditions most of his followers found themselves in. He had begun to attract large crowds of people, made up mostly of common folk. There were a few Jewish leaders, religious leaders, rulers, but mostly we're talking about lower to middle class people that were following him. They lived under the imperial rule of of the Roman Empire, and they lived a rather difficult existence, which I think is an understatement. Their life choices and options were very few. They were burdened by heavy taxation and weighed down by endless religious rules and traditions. In teaching these people, Jesus obviously was concerned with offering them a way to live well and to live with dignity and courage regardless of their circumstances. The instructions he gave in Matthew 5, 38 to 48, things like, turn the other cheek. He wants your... Cloak, give him your shirt as well. Go the extra mile. These phrases are so well known to us, they're, they're just common cliches. 
But our familiarity with these terms belies the radical actions and attitudes that Jesus is teaching here. These scenarios Jesus described were not hypothetical cliches. They were literal, common occurrences to many of these listeners. They were often violently assaulted by their superiors or masters. They were often indebted and lost their property to the landlords and lenders. They were often pressed into labor by the occupying Roman soldiers. Jesus taught the people to respond with integrity, to treat the oppressors better than they deserved, and by so doing, to resist the loss of their humanity. While these oppressors tried to exert their power, the people always had the freedom to choose how they would respond, and by resisting nonviolently and responding generously, they exposed the evil of the oppression and injustice that was being done. You want to talk about some spiritual truths and practical application? Yes, Wendell. I understand that this is, Christ is describing something. He's describing a person who's been healed. Yes. But I don't see the resisting nonviolently described. In what he's telling them to do? Yeah. No, it's all pretty much proactive. Yeah, where is the, the resisting nonviolently described in the, any of the behaviors that were described? Giving your other cheek, giving away your, your possessions to someone who unrighteously demands them. Right. You know, I don't see a resistance. Yeah. I see a living out <laughs> of a Christian ethic, but I don't see a resistance. And maybe it's there. No, I think that's a good point. I'm not seeing it, but... That may be something that the quarterly added. Just just question. Yeah. And notice that Jesus is not necessarily focused on behavior. Again, he's focused on heart attitude. We are not blessed for doing the right thing. We are blessed for having the right heart. And such a heart we cannot create. We can only receive it in relationship with Jesus Christ. We are also blessed when we endure the abuse of the world with a heart like Christ. When we love our enemies. When we turn the other cheek. When we pray for those who spitefully use us. Again, we are blessed when our hearts are divergent from the world. When our hearts are in harmony with the king of love from the kingdom of love. Thus we read in Romans 12, it says, Don't repay evil with evil. For in so doing, you only allow the infection of selfishness to be strengthened and thus damage your mind and character. Be sure to do what is right because it is right openly for all to see. Do all in your power to live at peace with others, but be aware that others may still perpetrate evil against you. And when this happens, my friends, do not take revenge. There is no need for it. For every act of sin reacts upon the sinner, damaging and slowly destroying their God-given faculties. Be patient and permit God's wrath to work. God's wise method of letting one go to reap the consequences of one's choice. And hopefully it will bring your enemy to repentance. As it is written, it is mine to discipline. I will settle any debts, says the Lord. 
Rather than taking revenge, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing good to your enemy, you will bring guilt and mental anguish like burning coals down on their head. So don't let evil and selfishness consume you, but rather expel evil and selfishness from your heart by doing good and loving others. That's from the remedy. That's Romans twelve seventeen through 21. Okay. Yes. You know, I've heard a lot of people read that people think Christianity is a crutch. You know, just mm-hmm. a, something people reach for, make up, yeah. just to help them get through life. Yeah. But I, I've, my experience has been that Christianity is the thing that allows you to take these bullets from of life and to deal with it and heal from it so that you don't pass it on to everybody exactly. else. Which I think is a tremendous strength. Yes. Otherwise, our tendency is to be treated badly, turn around and treat other people badly. They, in turn, treat other people badly. What is going to stop that? Yeah. And if it isn't us taking the bullets of life, healing from it, not passing it on, but instead passing good on. But I think the key to that is understanding through design law. Because I think there are versions of Christianity that are a crutch. And there are versions of Christianity in which we see no difference in child abuse rates and domestic violence rates and things like that. There are versions of Christianity and versions of God that not only do not transform the heart, they actually obstruct you from being able to to know who God is, who he's really like, and have your heart transformed. So I think some of those accusations may be accurate. It just depends on which version of Christianity and which version of God and the law you're interpreting it through. Yes? Your question is so relevant about resistance because uh, I can see the resistance uh, of Jesus in the way he lived mm-hmm. and by the things he said in word, in action. I can see John the Baptist resisting the powers by denouncing right. corruption. I see Jesus being killed not because he remained silent, but because he said something. Yes. Sometimes in parables. Sometimes uh, maybe we, we joke about things, mm-hmm. which is a sort of a parable about telling the truth. Yeah. He was killed because he told the truth. And that is a threat to fake power. For sure. So the resistance is not just remain silent. Yes, or to avoid confrontation. I mean, his, like you said, his points, his, the times he was not silent, his parables were pointed. They were told for a specific reason many times to tweak the religious leaders and the, the powers that be because he not in a mean way, because he knew that their stance was destructive. He knew that they were, they were so wrong about him and about the way God works, and that they were misrepresenting him to the people. One example that is very uh, disturbing for many of us is when Jesus uh, endorsed suicide. When, when he said that uh, for the people that teaches this kind of fake religion, fake God, uh, imposed life, forced life, mm-hmm. God, that he said that it was better for them to put a, a donut in A the millstone, cat. yeah. <laughs> and 
and kill themselves. Right. That doesn't mean suicide is a good thing. It's just this is better than exactly. The thing. Exactly. <laughs> Our mindset right now, right? What's the least worst thing? Yes. So that's very disturbing. But Jesus kind of went there. And I think he was trying to contrast just how damaging it was to be in that position of leadership and authority and be so wrong. You know, is there another comment? Yes. Our outwards, things that we do, it reflects how we think and how mm-hmm. we believe things. Out of the abundance so of the heart. our sinful behavior, Jesus didn't address those sinful behaviors. He addressed what caused the attitude. Exactly. And the attitude that led us to this. Yes. Because he knows if that part gets healed, yeah. the symptoms or the behaviors will resolve. I think that's what's coming out to me in this mm-hmm. And where is our focus always? Yes. Our focus is always on the outward appearance, always on the behavior. Yeah. Yeah. But my cough is better than your fever. Well, exactly. <laughs> we have a tendency to look down on the behaviors of others that seem less problematic than ours. Yes. We're all sick with dying of the same disease. Yeah, the analogy is that we're all in the, the terminal HIV ward and we are... Uh, making fun of each other for our different symptoms, that you have a cough, I have lesion. It's, it's insane. And that the healing has to take place in all of us. But I feel better if I get ten other people to agree with Of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's strength in, strength in those numbers, for sure. <laughs> so let's move to Tuesday's lesson, which is about the Good Samaritan. It's a familiar parable. I know it is to me because in the short time I have been teaching, I know that I've taught about the Good Samaritan at least three times. So we may not spend a ton of time here, but we want, I just want to bring out a couple of points. So in The Desire of Ages, Mrs. White has this to say about the story of the Good Samaritan. She says that in this story, Christ illustrated the nature of true religion. He shows that it consists not in systems, creeds, or rites, but in the performance of loving deeds, in bringing the greatest good to others in genuine goodness. Just as it was in Christ's day, this is not good news for leaders and officials of religious institutions who are responsible for developing those systems, creeds, and rites. Question, did stopping and helping the man in need change the Good Samaritan's heart? Or did he stop and help the man in need because his heart had already been changed? This is such an important concept to grasp because we are not saved by our works. Our works and the change or transformation in our works is evidence of the heart change and the healing process taking place in our lives. So this is another place where the legal metaphor really breaks down and just tends to cause confusion. So imagine someone is sick with a terminal disease, cancer, that's spread throughout their body in its late stages. Will any work on the part of the sick person heal them? Say, for instance, people who are healthy, they eat well. They eat a good diet. Can the cancer patient make the cancer go away by eating a full healthy meal every day? 
if healthy people participate in physical activities, could the cancer patient make the cancer go away by playing basketball or baseball or jogging, hiking? What happens to a person's ability to eat well and participate in physical activities when the cancer progresses? What happens to their ability to function normally? It's impaired, right? Now, if a person with cancer receives a cure, a remedy which puts the cancer into remission, then what changes might we see in their function? How might we recognize that the person is now well or on the road back to health? Might they start eating regularly again? Might they start engaging in more physical activity? Do such behaviors heal them? Or do such behaviors occur when they are healed? How was mankind originally designed to function? In selfless love to others. And what did sin do to our functioning? It wrecked it. It turned us fearful and selfish. And is there any work we can do to change ourselves? No. But when Christ heals us, will our functioning change? Thank goodness. Yes. But it is a healing process. In many ways, the work of a lifetime. As Paul points to in Romans 7, what a wretched man I am. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. We're sitting, we're told that we do nothing, but I think there's one thing that we do that's agree with the sign of Christ and, and we to choose yes. to take his remedy. Choose and cooperate. Exactly. Exactly. And the key to that is being one back to trust. Yep. And he's, he promises to do it all. Because the, there's a form of religion where people say, I believe God. Yes. I'm saved now. I'm always saved because I believe that. And, and yet, um, it is a transforming thing happening in their life just because uh, they say they believe that what yes. the Bible says about God and Jesus is true. To me, it's a lot like, I believe in this physician. He orders the medicine for me. I may even go to the pharmacy and get, get it. it. But if I stick it on my shelf thinking, this medicine will probably heal me, but I never take any of it. Right. I don't take it routinely, every day and whatever. Will I be cured no matter how good the physician is or how yeah. good the medicine is? If I don't take it, I'm not going to be It cannot work in you. That's the one analogy. The other analogy is that the physician's name is Osama bin Laden. And he's got a cure that's guaranteed to work. But am I going to make the appointment? Am I going to have the doctor visit? Probably not. Because I don't trust that he's got my best at heart. So those are the two keys. We have to be one back to trust by the picture of God that Jesus gave us. And then we have to agree and cooperate and take the remedy. And he's promised to replicate everything that he achieved while he was here on earth, that perfect human character in us, so that it's not I that live, but Christ lives in me. And there's nothing I can do other than saying yes to make that happen.
All right, we're moving to Wednesday's, Wednesday's lesson. And we're talking about another parable. The rich man and Lazarus. Everybody familiar with that parable? Kind of a wacky one. So the first paragraph in the lesson summarizes this parable and then says about the two men. In life, their respective circumstances remained unchanged. But in death, as judged by God, their positions were dramatically reversed. Any thoughts about that? Was the dramatic reversal of positions caused by or result of God's judgment? God's judgment is saying what is. Yeah, I have in here, what if it said, but in death, as diagnosed by God, their positions were dramatically reversed? Would that sound different? I think the Adventist Church in particular has had difficulty with this particular um, parable. Because it seems to talk about an afterlife, yeah. the two can communicate, and how many people can fit in Abraham's bosom anyway? <laughs> and so then you have to say it is a parable. Right. And I think the Sabbath school lesson maybe missed the point of the parable because Jesus was talking to Pharisees. Right. And he said... And the point of this parable is, if you don't believe in Moses and the prophets, you wouldn't believe, even if a person was brought back from the dead. That's the gist of this parable. Mm-hmm. It's not an afterlife scenario. It is, a, it is a parable to the Pharisees, who he was talking to, saying, basically, he's saying, when I raise Lazarus from life, from death, right. which he will do, he even named the same guy in yes. the parable, when I raise Lazarus from life, you still no. won't believe because you don't believe Moses and the prophets, you won't believe even when I bring Moses, I mean, Lazarus back to life. And sure enough, not only did they not turn around and believe the truth, but they then decided they should kill Jesus and Lazarus. He was right on their hit list, even though they'd seen that Jesus raised him from the dead. Well, no, I totally agree. And what's interesting is, and I don't know that I knew this, there was some strong beliefs about an afterlife in the people that he was teaching. They did think that there was some sort of, I don't know if it was purgatory, I don't know if it was something after death when there was some, still some stuff going on. And so he was meeting them where they were. He was speaking to them in a, an analogy, a metaphor, a parable that met them where they were and that they would understand. And you're right. I mean, he's talking to people that are the children of Abraham. They've had the message, the special anointing for a long time. And they, they thought they were special. They knew that they had been given special, uh, the scriptures, the Torah, special messages, but they didn't, they took it as being exclusive and being above other people. They didn't take it as, as a blessing. And like you said, they killed all of the prophets. They didn't listen to their messages They had the Son of God standing right in front of them and weren't listening to him, didn't want to hear what he said. So yeah, he was pointing out their flaws and predicting some future events. Not about the parable, but tweaking them. (laughs) He was literally telling them, I know, this happens, you are not going to change your point of view. Exactly. But do you think they got it? Do you think they thought he was talking about them? 
I don't think there was a lot of self-introspection going on there. So I want to contrast the view we just read from the quarterly with one of the founders of our church. Um, In her, her book, Christ Object Lessons, there's an entire chapter, chapter 21, that's devoted to the meaning interpretation of this parable. So listen to just the first two paragraphs and see if you can detect any differences. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, Christ shows that in this life, men decide their eternal destiny. During probationary time, the grace of God is offered to every soul. But if men waste their opportunities in self-pleasing, they cut themselves off from everlasting life. No after probation will be granted them. By their own choice, they have fixed an impassable gulf between them and their God. This parable draws a contrast between the rich who have not made God their dependents and the poor who have made God their dependents. Christ shows that the time is coming when the position of the two classes will be reversed. Those who are poor in this world's goods, yet who trust in God and are patient in suffering, will one day be exalted above those who now hold the highest positions the world can give, but who have not surrendered their lives to God. One more. This is from Desire of Ages. In the great judgment day, those who have not worked for Christ, who have drifted along, thinking of themselves, caring for themselves, will be placed by the judge of the whole earth with those who did evil. They receive the same condemnation. What condemnation? Again, it is not about behavior. It's about heart motive and the condition of our hearts. I mean, can I do something good with ulterior motives without my heart being transformed? Could I start a charitable organization but may have ulterior motives, maybe a financial gain or tax advantages or I want to get my kid into a good college or something. I don't know. But I start a charitable organization. And that organization actually might end up doing some good for some people, blessing some people. But what's, what's happened in my own heart? Has that changed? Are my motives different? Am I being healed? Am I being saved? No. It is not about the specific behaviors. You can do the right thing for the wrong reasons, and you can do the wrong thing for the right reasons. Even Paul said... I have to be careful because after I've done all this for everybody else, I don't want to lose my place. Yes. He didn't believe in once saved, always saved. If he's doing all these good things, he could get so focused on the good things that he might lose his own relationship yeah. to God, you know, and, and start self glorifying. Look at all the wonderful mm-hmm. things I'm doing, you know, and he said, I have to keep check on that. Yeah. You know, make sure that I don't lose my, after doing all these things and helping all, everyone else there. Maybe I don't get there because I lose my connection to God. And I think that's connected to loving others as we love ourselves. 
so taking care of that, our own relationship, our own time with God is as important as going out and doing good things. And we're going to, eh, I don't know if we're going to talk about that or not. It's in the notes if we don't. So what's the condemnation? Why are these people condemned? Are they condemned by God? They're diagnosed by God. They're condemned by the condition of their heart. They're condemned by unhealed terminal disease. This same author describes it in these ways. At the end of Christ Object Lessons, chapter 21, that same chapter, the last two sentences are, By their own neglect, they have formed a chasm which nothing can bridge. Between them and the righteous, there is a great gulf fixed. Some would even say sealed. And in the book, The Great Controversy, is another familiar quote in this class. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves. And just and merciful on the part of God. Like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declare God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. That's why they're condemned. Again, this is nothing about works or behaviors. It's about a change in heart motive. And I have in here the folks at the end. They, and I mean, it's not that they're not doing anything. They're prophesying. They're preaching They're performing miracles. They're casting out demons. Not in in pagan names, in the name of Christ. And they really thought they were doing the right things, but not for the right reason. They had the behaviors down pat, but their hearts were still stone. And they never really knew God. And if you've ever been in a bad relationship, marriage or something... You would understand that feeling. You end up you end up being a roommate with somebody who looks like they're doing all the right things, but you know their heart is not with you. Yeah. Their heart is not with you. And the heart was the main thing that needed to be with you to be a marriage. Right. But they look like a good person. Yeah. They, they come home, they bring in money and pay the bills, and they in the community they look uh, wonderful, but at home has a whole different story. Mm-hmm. And you know, from our even our earthly experiences, that kind of relationship is just horrible. I mean, it, it's a death knell to yeah. marriage when there's no heart in there. Yeah, it's almost worse than the rejection of them leaving, mm-hmm. in my experience. But talk about tweaking. The religious leaders and the Pharisees, this is what he was, he was talking to them. Again, they are the pinnacle of that society. They are as high as it gets on the, on the ladders. And he's telling them, you're whitewashed tombs. You're of your father, the devil. I mean, he was every single ordinance and Levitical law that was horrific to them. He was likening them to because he knew they were checking all the boxes. They looked to be the most upstanding of anybody there, and they were vacant inside. And when you find a convert, you make it twice as that you are yourselves. Yeah. That's a terrible thing to say to a church leader. Uh, it is. Yeah. Even today, right. All right, so we've got a couple minutes left, and Thursday's lesson talks about the least of these. I want to take it in a little bit different direction.
when we, when we think about, and we've talked in this class, that sometimes it seems like there's so many in need, there's so many to help, that it's almost overwhelming and it's paralyzing and we're not sure who to help or how to help. And Epi has said, you know, if you can't help everybody, you can help one. And I think that's true. We all have our own sphere of influence, our own circle with one or two degrees of separation that we can impact. But, and this goes back to the lesson I taught a couple weeks ago about loving others as we love ourselves, and what does that mean? The only infinite resource that we finite humans have on this earth is our capacity to love. Even Christ as a human was subject to his limited finite humanity. Jesus took time away from the masses to meditate and rejuvenate. And Jesus' humanity was like ours. His humanity did not have infinite resources. It required him to rest and recover. So with that in mind, can we help too much? Our finite resources must be spent in a controlled manner. And they are subject to the law of restoration. You remember what the law of restoration is? That after any finite resources is is expended, it has to rest and recover in order to not burn out or run out. So in the healthcare arena, whose health, well-being, and safety are the most important? The caregivers. Why? Just like in the airplane, they say the oxygen comes down, put it on yourself, and then if you can only have one more, pick your favorite child. Right. (laughs) That's the Southwest flight, I'm guessing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, of course, if the caregiver goes down, then no one is getting any care. Not only that, and even worse, the caregiver then becomes a patient and taxes the system even more. Same reason why in airplane emergencies they tell you to put your own mask on before assisting others. So think about this analogy. There's been a big traumatic event downtown Chattanooga, and Erlanger is desperately in need of blood donations in order to treat the injured. You know that your blood type is in high demand and you want to help. So you go downtown, you donate a pint of blood, and you're able to save a couple of people's lives. But you figure if you donate another pint... Then you could save even more lives. And three pints could save even more. Is this a good idea? Why? There are so many people injured and they really need more blood. Or if you choose to donate a pint every month, letting your body rest and recover and rejuvenate, then how many people do you help for your lifetime? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Is it loving to expend our resources to the point where we can't recover? Are we seeing any practical application of this in our country today? Not really. Why do you think that is? Greed. 
and try to get through to a bunch of companies. Some of it's great. The same thing, and then one company steps ahead, I'll block and beat them by doing this. Then all the other companies go, ooh, ooh me that. too, me too. And then another one says, oh, we can beat them by doing this. And so they keep ramping each other up and ramping yeah. each other up until the poor workers are just squeezed totally dry. Yeah. Or the opposite, where we're bringing all these immigrants in, taking care of them and not taking care of our own people. Or, I mean, even if we're taking care of them, can we take in the world? Yeah. Is, is this country's... I mean, we are blessed. There is no doubt about it. But is, are these countries' resources finite? Will they run out eventually if they're not replenished and rejuvenated? Yes. Well, as a you know, sort of immigrant, because I'm a student, <laughs> I collaborate with the country. I don't absorb the resources of the country. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when we have to stop being partisan yeah. and listen to Jesus. Uh, what totally Jesus agree. says about that is, is my politics. That's all I'm yeah. going to say. Yeah. Russell. In Tim's book, God Shaped Party, he outlines two different methodologies for caring. Right. Or the, 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 the beastly way is to pass laws, enact taxes, and, and take money from people who have earned yeah. it and, and redistribute it to those who haven't. And what that engenders is a sense of resentment from those the money is taken and a sense of entitlement from those who are given it for, for no reason whatsoever. Right. The, and it's actually destructive and damaging to them, to their self-worth, to their purpose, to both, yes. And the, the design law is in harmony with the law of liberty and freedom of giving, where those who have excess give freely to those who don't. That is... That improve the spirit of those who give, makes them more likely to give, and it engenders a feeling of thankfulness in right. those who receive. Agreed. And if you haven't checked out, there, uh, Dr. Jennings has written a blog recently, in the last month or so, and it's called uh, Purposeful Work or Handouts, How to Help Those in Need. And it's excellent. If you haven't read that, check it out on our website. Yes. The mistakes are part of our reality. Mm-hmm. When we have a trillion dollars, we can choose and help people that are suffering, or you can just give it away to the rich. Right. So, and uh, again, uh, methodology it shouldn't be a problem for the kingdom of Jesus because the kingdom of Jesus doesn't look at that. Yeah. You give because people need. You don't give because they deserve. Correct. And you give because that's who you are now. It is Christ living in you, and that's who he is. He lives to give. And the more you give, the more you receive. The bottom line is, and I struggle with this, like you're talking about the politics, the nationality, we have to remember that this is not where our citizenship resides. Our citizenship is in heaven. And I struggle to remain out of the trappings of this world. Um, So let's pray that... uh, he helps us do that, helps us keep a, a kingdom perspective. Let's bow our heads. Father, we're so grateful that, that you're here with us and that, uh, that we don't have the work to do. You've already done the work, and our work is just to say yes, to trust you, and to cooperate with you. And so we ask for a special outpouring of your spirit and your power to do that. 
And Father, keep our eyes on Jesus and keep our thoughts on things above uh, for eternity, not for just here in this world. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.